to uh, keep that open. Uh, look at it together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you um, for Luke's gospel. Thank you for the certainty that it gives us into Jesus, who he is. And Lord, we, we know that actually so often our, our view, our understanding of Jesus is so in, insufficient. Please, as we see him this morning, would you increase our view of him to a more accurate place? In Jesus' name, amen. How big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus? I, I don't mean height, so I don't mean in your mind's eye when you think of Jesus, is he five foot six, is he five foot ten, is he six foot two? I mean, how big is your Jesus? How powerful is he? How authoritative is he? How strong is he? Because when we think of Jesus, some people think of Jesus, and when they think of Jesus, they just think of an irrelevancy to somebody who was just like any other person. Some think of him as, well, interesting, an interesting historical um, character. In fact, maybe even impressive. There was something about him. But perhaps too often, even as Christians, our view of Jesus kind of comes pocket-sized. Our view of Jesus is too small. First and foremost, this is hugely dishonoring to Jesus himself. But also, a faith in a Jesus that big is going to do us no good. It's not going to help us when we get a call from the doctor with bad news. Jesus that big is, won't help at all when a relationship is breaking down or when we don't meet our targets at work or when all, all those little things come together. Bad sleep, looking after elderly parents, sleeping badly, stru children struggling at school, all those things. Faith in a Jesus that big is, is just not going to help us one bit. Thankfully, he's not. The real Jesus is plenty big enough. The focus today and next week is on the miracles of Jesus, the works that he's done. The last few weeks we've spent in Luke looking at his teaching, hearing what he said. But the focus now and next week is on Jesus' his actions. Today, we're going to see his power and authority over creation and over evil. Next week, we're going to see his authority over sickness and death. Our question is, is your Jesus big enough? But let's see him as he really is. So first off, we see that Jesus has power over storms. Uh, one day, Jesus decided that he and the disciples should head across the Sea of Galilee. Um, here's a picture of it as it looks today. Um, although it's called the Sea of Galilee, sea of Galilee is, is a lake. Um, and uh, Jesus often ministered uh, kind of around the edges of it. And one day he said, look, we're going to go across it with his disciples. And the disciples, almost certainly the apostles, the 12, and most likely a good number of others as well. And they set off, and as they do, Jesus quickly falls asleep. But a good number of the apostles were fishermen, and so they got no problem finding their way across the water. 
sometime into this journey, a huge storm rose up. Uh, and this was, is, even to this day, apparently pretty common. Okay, so the, the Sea of Galilee was, is quite a long way below sea level. It's quite shallow. And it's surrounded by these um, hills and, and mountains and ravines. And so you get the wind whistling off and coming down and bringing on these very quick storms. Not uncommon, uncommon, but this one was particularly bad. You see in the second half of verse 23, the description of it there, and they were filling with water and were in danger. This is a particularly bad one. And we know how particularly bad it was because even the seasoned fishermen were afraid. Verse 24, and they went and woke him, Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. You can kind of imagine them, can't you? That the land lovers just clinging on for dear life, the fishermen desperately trying to bail out water while not getting thrown over the side themselves. It is utter terror for all of them except Jesus, who's fast asleep. Now, it was obviously a, a traumatic experience for the disciples, but for, for us readers a bit later on, we can dig into it a little bit more. In the Bible, storms, waves, the sea, um, so often represent and picture chaos and danger. It, it pictures some trouble, some kind of trouble that can sweep upon somebody. I just want us to note something very obvious, but some, sometimes I think forgotten, that following Jesus doesn't stop storms from coming upon, upon his people. Following Jesus doesn't stop the storms coming. Nowhere in the Bible are we led to believe that Christians are going to be protected from these troubles and dangers of life. And in fact, we see actually following Jesus led these disciples into this storm. You look back to verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. You see, it was their being obedient to Jesus, their following of Jesus, that led them into this storm in the first place. Life, even as Christians, can often be chaotic. Be battered this way and that. It can be turbulence. It can be scary. It can sometimes feel like we're drowning. Maybe you're in a storm right now. You're not. You're sure storms will come. Jesus' disciples, anyway, they were terrified. They thought that they were going to drown. And can you just imagine their, their surprise and their concern that when they look over, Jesus is there asleep. He, he was there, but he wasn't there. I experienced something a little bit like this uh, a good few years ago now. I was about 20, um, went on a mission trip to Romania with uh, my church from university. And me and a teenager, 16, 17-year-old, went out late after the, the rest of the group. So we flew to Bucharest and we got picked up at the airport. And it was, I think it's like an eight-hour drive to where this camp that we were helping in. And the pastor had driven across to pick us this eight hours in like a little minivan that he'd used to, to collect the other group. And we got, he drove us out of the airport and then he pulled over, just got in the airport and said, do either of you drive? I said, yeah, well, I do. The other guy was... Not old enough. I do. But great. Come and drive. Go that way. And then proceeded to go into the back of the van, lie down and go to sleep. I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. The biggest thing I've ever driven. 
And all I've been told is go that way. I don't know what the speed limits are. I don't know etiquette. Like, it's a crazy place to drive if you do. The hard shoulders are lanes over there. It's a terrifying experience. It's kind of, he was there, but he wasn't there for all intents and purposes. Imagine how much scarier for the disciples. Jesus is there, but he's not there. And sometimes facing those storms can feel like that, can't it? We know Jesus is with us. He promises to be with all of his people, but it doesn't always seem like he is. Sometimes it may feel like he's asleep. But don't doubt his hair and don't doubt his power. Have a look at verse 24 again, the second half now. Um, and they were from the beginning, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Jesus woke up, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. He told them off. He spoke, and just like that, it was all calm. That does not happen. Yes, winds can disappear almost as quickly as it comes. But even when a wind disappears, waves take hours and hours and hours to calm down naturally. Jesus spoke the word and it was calm. It stopped. Maybe think back to, to sometime this week when you told someone or something to do something. Okay, well, actually, it's half term. But like a teacher telling a pupil or an owner telling their pet something, or a boss telling their employee, or a worker shouting at their computer. How often when we tell something or someone to do something, do they actually do it? And do they actually do it like that? Barely ever. And yet speaking to creation at its wildest and most powerful, Jesus says a word and it obeys. If you've ever been in the sea, whether it's just in person or on a boat, you know how powerful the sea can be, even when it's calm. Yet in this storm, Jesus says a word, and it is still. Jesus has power over creation. He has power over the storms. But I think we'll find these next words a little bit uncomfortable. Have a look at verse 25. He, Jesus, said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? You know, I find those words uncomfortable because I think my reaction would have been exactly the same as theirs. And if I'm honest, too often that is my reaction when hardships and difficulties come upon me now. You know, I think their reaction is understandable, isn't it? But even though it's understandable, it doesn't make it right. The disciples had seen enough of Jesus' power and authority. They'd seen miracle after miracle. They'd seen enough of Jesus' care for people. They'd seen enough that they should have trusted him. They should have had faith. But then what I think is perhaps the most interesting part of this story is the disciples' response here. Because Jesus has calmed the storm. He has taken the danger away. They are no longer in danger of drowning. They, he's taken away what has caused their fear. They have no need to be afraid, but they do. 
but they do. Have a look at verse 25 again. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? As I said, the disciples had seen numerous miracles already. There is something about this one that stands out above the others. There's something about this one that shows complete, total power and authority over creation. Such power. And they are afraid in the face of that power. Now we, looking back, again, we're in a position to to answer their question. They could have, perhaps they should have, known the answer to that question. The Old Testament has, has a number of references to, um, to calming of sea, calming of storms. And it is always God who does that. So just one example from Psalm 107. Uh, it says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up waves of the sea. They mounted up to heavens, to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who could calm the sea like that? Well, God could. Only God could do that. Now, how big is your Jesus? Well, he has power over creation. He has power over the storms that we may face. I guess, but how do we know he cares? Well, most importantly and explicitly of all, later at the cross, Jesus would endure the dark storm of God's wrath. He didn't calm that storm, rather he remained silent and endured its full violence. And if he died for you, then we don't need to doubt Jesus' care for us. He may not necessarily calm the storm's as we would like them when we would like it. But he is with us, and he does have all power. Secondly, Jesus has power over evil. So when Jesus and the disciples, they they make lands, they're, they're met by a pitiable scene. Have a look at verse 27. When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house among the tombs. This man he meets is possessed by demons, plural. In fact, if you look down to verse 30, uh, you'll see that there there are many that the the man, the the demons give themselves the name Legion because many demons had entered him. Demons or unclean or evil spirits as sometimes they're called that they're real created beings who've rebelled against God and are utterly opposed to him and his purposes. And they were particularly active around Jesus' arrival. 
And here we can see the destruction that they caused to this man. Possessed by demons as he is, again in verse 27, we see that he has no dignity, that he's not been wearing clothes for such a long time. We find that he's living among the dead. He didn't want to live in a house, rather he was living near the tombs. And in verse 29, we see that he was dangerous. That although he was kept under guard and bound by chains and shackles, sometimes he would break those bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now with the disciples' question fresh in our minds, who is this then that can do this? Now with that question fresh in our minds, notice that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you do have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. That, that word fell down is um, a word that is often used um, in uh, connection with worship, to fall down and worship. Now this man, this demon, isn't worshipping here, but he recognises Jesus' greatness, and so he falls down before him. Because he knows that Jesus is the son of the most high God. God's son, God himself. And there we saw in, in that verse, and the first of three times that this, this man, the demons, they beg of Jesus. So firstly there again in verse um, 28, I beg you do not torment me. The second time comes in verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss, the place of the dead, awaiting for final judgment. But they know their day is coming, and they beg to not be sent there. And then thirdly, in verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Some people get a little bit worked up by this kind of animal welfare. But why did Jesus do this? Why did he send these demons into the, the pigs to go and drown themselves? Well, number one, just note that he didn't command it. He gave permission. Okay, the, the, they wanted to do it. He gave permission. Yes, he could indeed have refused. But why did he do that? Well, look, when we read of demons, we know they're bad. We can see what they've done to this man. But here we see quite how bad they are. Don't we see their power, their power? Don't we see their destructiveness? That they would head into this herd and fling them off the edge of a cliff and to drown themselves. And we see that happen, we go, oh, that's what was in that man. That's what was in that man. And when we, we see their power and their destructiveness, well, don't we see Jesus' power all the more? That before him, these demons that could do that fell down and begged of him. Jesus has power over evil. This legion of demonic forces are utterly undone before one man. But of course, he is not 
any ordinary man. Later on in verse 39, um, Jesus will, will tell the man to, to go away and to declare what God, God has done for you. But as he does that, notice that the man went away and told the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. See, for the man, there is no distinction between God and Jesus because there is no, in that sense, distinction between God and Jesus. God himself, total power. Is your Jesus big enough? Jesus has authority over and power over creation. He has power and authority over evil. So, so what? Well, first off, so have faith. Have faith. We the one who has power like this. The disciples, in the presence of the one who had such power, you remember they were afraid. Well, you know what? Authority and power that is terrifying and is used for the good of others is authority and power worth trusting. Let me say that, say that again. Authority and power that is terrifying and is used for the good of others is authority and power worth trusting. And then in the second account, you know, the confrontation between Jesus and the demons is almost dull. This would not make a good film. Yeah? This is not a titanic battle between good and evil fighting it out. This isn't always, oh, is he going to win, is he not going to win, is he going to win, is he not going to win, like a kind of Marvel film. No. It's not a fair fight. But you know what? I don't want it to be a fair fight. The Jesus I'm trusting in is not a kind of, oh, is he going to win it or not? He has total and utter authority and power. And Jesus like that is worthy of our trust. Jesus is bigger than the thing that you're going through right now. He's bigger than the thing that you're afraid of that you might go through. Nothing in our life is too big for Jesus. And next week, I say in part two, we're going to see even more. This is power and authority over sickness and death too. Have faith. Don't doubt his care for you. Don't doubt his power. Look to him, trust him, even in those storms. Secondly, since he has this power, well, don't push him away. What do I mean by that? Well, coming back to the, the, the story of the, the demon-possessed man, the, the response of the people isn't perhaps what we would expect. Have a look down at verse 34 again. Now, when the herdsmen saw that it had happened, they fled and told it in the city, in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Okay, probably nothing that we wouldn't expect there. But see verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Didn't they be excited? Didn't they be rejoicing? Didn't they be praising? 
You see, but the people, they recognized the bigness and power of Jesus and they wanted nothing to do with him. Why? I think we might perhaps get two, two clues. Firstly, just like the disciples, they feared Jesus. But it seems like their fear was a bit different. The disciples feared and marveled and questioned, who is this? Whereas these people were seized with a great fear. And so they asked him to leave. They were so afraid they wanted nothing to do with him. But Jesus doesn't want us to cower. He doesn't want us to try and increase the distance between us and him. He doesn't want us to run away or push him out. Again, he's shown that at the cross when he laid down that power in order to reconcile us to God, to bring us to him. See, he uses this power for the good of others. That's perhaps the first clue. They're just so overwhelmed by his power they want nothing to do with him. But also I think there's an element of them simply not wanting Jesus there. He is simply too disruptive. You know, the destruction of that herd of pigs would have been a really significant financial loss. And they feared that, well, life as they know it was going to be turned upside down if Jesus remained there. And you know what? They quite liked life as it was. And so they wanted him away. And you know what? Yes. Jesus is not convenient. Jesus does turn life upside down. But the Jesus that we've seen so clearly is one that is, again, worth having our lives turned upside down by. So don't, don't push him away. Yes, he does call us for a radical change of life. But that is a good and right thing. Thirdly, well, since Jesus has this power, go and tell everyone what he's done for you. See, the man who's been healed, he, he does the opposite of the crowds. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might... Um, sorry, let me start again. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. See, the Jesus, uh, sorry, this man is now in his right mind and he longed to be with Jesus. But Jesus has other plans for him. He had work for him to do. So he sent him away, verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see, he had work to do. It reminds me a bit of the Apostle Paul in Philippians that we looked at a, a long while ago now, but who, who wanted, as it were, to die, to go and be with Jesus. But actually his desire was to stay and to serve him and to minister to the people. Yes, being with Jesus is the greatest thing. But actually now, here and now, he's got work for his people to do. And what a great description of how it is we are to do this work. Go and tell him what he has done for you. Jesus has power over storms. He has power over evil. We have faith. Don't push him away. Tell everyone what he's done for you. Like a, do a domesticated Jesus, a pocket-sized Jesus, is no use in face of chaos of life. But Jesus is more than big enough. Be more again next week. Pray.
Father, we thank you for all that we see of Jesus here. Lord Jesus, we praise you, the one with great and awesome power and authority. Thank you that you are worthy of our trust. And again, please continue to, to reveal yourself more and more to us, that our view of you would be, be more accurate, and so our trust would increase. Thank you also that you use that authority and power for the good of others. Again, Lord, would we trust you even in the difficult times of life? In Jesus' name.